0: Cambridge Ideas. Transforming tomorrow. You're listening to the 2009 Cambridge Festival of Ideas. In this talk, David Starkey gives the first Mark Piggott lecture on Henry VIII and his legacy. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Henry is a very important king. I would argue, and I will argue, as this lecture continues, that he is actually the most important king between the Norman conquest and now. But equally, many of his predecessors were great monarchs. An Edward I, an Edward III, a William the Conqueror. These are astonishing figures. Why don't they impress themselves on our mind in the same way? In other words, why are medieval colleagues so bitterly jealous of what I can do. The explanation is this. It's a certain chap called Holbein. The reason that the Tudors fit themselves, as it were, go into our mind in an almost subliminal way, is that they are the first dynasty that we can imagine we know as people. If you don't know what people looked like, or what they were thought to look like, or what they were presented as looking like. You cannot know them. And, of course, this uh, has become more and more powerful as we've shifted from the essentially verbal age of the 19th century into the visual age of the late 20th and early 21st. So, One of the absolutely central facts about the Tudors is you have this thing called representational art. It's, of course, going along with that, that it's representational art of a very particular type, as I've obviously revealed my age, and (laughs) I'm I'm pushing 65, and and I grew up in the world of the 60s. This was, of course, a world, uh, it wasn't anything like as exciting as you imagine it really was very, very boring. Cambridge, needless to say, only caught up with it in 1969. And the real truth is that the 60s didn't happen till the 70s. And I'm, I'm never quite forgiven chronology uh, for that fact. You've only got to look at the difference between Tony Blair and myself, for example, and you see just how exciting the 70s were, but equally the extent of brain rot that they produced, whereas those of us of the 60s uh, survived that. But in the, the 60s was, of course, the great age of the infatuation of perfectly otherwise reasonable and sensible people you know, with Trotsky, Che Guevara, and whatever. Each one of these people was, of course, a powerful visual symbol. Every one of them had a kind of portrait. You'll think of the portraits of Marx or Stalin or Lenin and, or, or Che Guevara. The portrait is, is simplified, is blocked out in a very remarkable way. So is Henry. The portrait is intended to be a symbol and it's also intended to be instantly memorable. So, portrait, memorability. Because, of course, there's another way in which the Tudors impress themselves into our minds, which is why, you know, Henry still resonates, Elizabeth still resonates after 500 years. It is because they were and have become more than history. They're not simply history. The Tudors are more than history. they are myth. They've become mythic. The Tudors have actually become the equivalent of the English, Greek, the English, not only the English, the English-speaking world's Greek myths. That's what it's about. Um, in other words, Henry, you know Henry's just so much better than Bluebeard. If any of you have seen Bartok's interminably tedious opera, you will know that there are this series of doors representing the nameless horrors of the previous marriages. Ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing nameless about the horrors in Henry. They're all there, and they're real, and they're horrible. And especially the little boys love horrible history. So the Tudors are mythic Elizabeth, again, uh, the, the sort of English Virgin Queen, Mary, the English Medea, uh, uh, Edward VI, the kind of child of eternal promise. Off. They're mythic, they're mythic. But the final reason, and again, just, just think of this lecture, think even as I'm speaking now, in what I hope is the deepest circle of hell, we'll be shortly joined by you know, all the nasty um, genocidists of the 21st century, is Henry, we hope, toasting away. He will be unbelievably chuffed to know we're still Because again, in that journal of intellectual record, the Radio Times, I found myself deeply, it's about the only thing that holds a nation together now. um, uh, I found myself taken severely to task when my last um, Henry VIII series came out because I'd ventured to suggest that Henry had an idea of fame. Ladies and gentlemen, It was not, as the correspondent, the learned, I'm sure, correspondent to the Radio Times, though, why anybody who can write actually writes for the Radio Times is beyond me, but never mind, um, uh, uh, complained that what I was doing was bringing history down to the level of vulgar celebrity culture. Ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing more vulgar, or dare I say, (laughs) cultured, than Henry VIII. And he was concerned about fame. That is what he was about. We've actually got the testimony of the man who really supervised his his, his further education. He, He didn't go to university. His his further education uh, was received at court but when you've got tutors like Erasmus and Thomas More, even Cambridge I think has got slightly to defer uh, to that. Uh, And the man in charge of it all was uh, called his studiorum, his companion of studies um, and and was a a young nobleman called William Blunt, Lord Mountjoy. When Henry's come to the throne, William Blunt, Lord Mountjoy, writes to Erasmus who by this point has returned to the Netherlands. He's summoned summoning him back to England and his future, as he thinks, at Henry's court. And he explains what Henry is about, why he's so different from his father. And he says, this king isn't interested in gold, jewels, and filthy lucre like his father. This king, the young Henry, remember who is 17 years and 10 months old. He's the age of a sixth former. Boys think this is a really good idea, being absolute king. When you're 17 years and 10 months old, the rest of us may have our doubts. But anyway, um, Henry is, according to Mountjoy, what's he interested in? Virtue, glory, immortality. Henry is aiming consciously for fame in a way which is you know, it's exactly the same as you know, strictly come dancing or the X Factor or whatever, except that you know, nowadays people think they get it for 10 minutes on TV. At least he knew he had to rule England for 30 or 40 years to get it. There is a difference. But nevertheless, the aim, the aspiration, that, that people at the time, people of subsequent generations, will talk about you, that you will impress yourself on them, is there. Remember, they're inheriting the culture of Rome, which is a culture in which everything, because they don't really believe in an immortality of the soul in the ancient world, your immortality's got to be achieved here by your fame, by your deeds. And that very much, I think, is what Henry wanted. And the fact that I'm giving this lecture and sell the books and make the TV series suggests he succeeded. (laughs) The question that I want to address now is, did he deserve to? Why? So let's look at that. Did he deserve to? Well, I think to be famous and to make a real impact, there needs to be a sense of novelty, of difference, of doing something fresh. Otherwise, why, how do you actually stand out? And what I thought it might be useful to do, I find myself in this position at the moment... uh, Obviously, the book you're all rushing to buy, I've not bought outside, uh, deals with Henry uh, in the years before he becomes king and a couple of years afterwards. I am now writing what I hope will be the last volume, but may very well turn out to be the middle of three, which is looking at Henry when he's become king. And what I'm asking myself is, what did he bring to being king? What did he do with it? How did it change? Because remember, it seems to me all history and all biography, particularly those of us who got to a certain stage in our lives, we know we change too. What you are when you're 20, what you are when you're 40, what you are when you're 60, what you you are when you're 80 is different. We change, the greyheads are all nodding. Um, which is a really important thing. The young, of course, look disbelieving. They know they're perfect and will never change, but there we are. Time will tell, girls and boys. Now, um, I think that this is the right way to approach Henry. And what I want to do, then, is quickly to describe the young Henry and to highlight what is conventional and what isn't. What is, in other words, again, as a historian, what you should always be on the lookout for is what is odd. What is different? That is the great exercise of discrimination when you're doing research, is to look for the singular, the oddity, the thing that strikes you as being different. Well, let's look at Henry. Henry is born in 1491. Um, He is, hence the fact that he's 17 years and 10 months when he becomes king on the 22nd of April, 1509. The first and most important fact to understand about Henry is he was never intended to be king at all. That's the most important fact. He is the second son. He is the spur and not the heir. If we look at Henry's siblings, his elder siblings, his elder brother Arthur, born um, in uh, September 1486, his elder sister Margaret, um, born in November 1489, So Arthur is brought up in this extraordinary way. He's he's given his own separate masculine household, I think two months after his birth. Um, He is at the age of six. He is left behind when his father goes off uh, to fight the obligatory French war. It's the the equivalent of a kind of rugger mansion. You you, you go off and have it. Uh, He goes off and fights the obligatory French war, and he leaves little Arthur, age six, behind as regent. And we would all teeter very happily, you know, ha-ha-ha-ha-ha, and the idea of a six-year-old as regent. Then we would perhaps fall silent when we look at the Acts of the Privy Council, which are signed by him. There was no nonsense in those days, ladies and gentlemen, that perhaps, you know, six is too early to start reading. At this point, he would have been trilingual, Latin, French, and English, okay? Okay. Um, Anyway, he signs the Acts, and obviously having run England as regent, being Prince of Wales is a doddle. So at this point he is sent off uh, to learn really to rule um, as Prince of Wales with his headquarters at Ludlow. Henry's upbringing is completely and totally different. He is brought up in the circle of his mother, not admittedly that she's there all the time, with his sisters and by women until his early teens. (laughs) Now, we know this, of course, because of the unbelievably tedious records of the royal household that I made a bit of a specialism of studying. It's it's new, and it's very, very important. Um, It's also, of course... um, a reflection of the fact that the Tudors I've described already, Henry VII as the man who should never have been king. The Tudors, although they're England's most famous dynasty, are equally England's least legitimate dynasty. So they're desperately anxious for legitimation. And what Henry VII and Elizabeth of York are doing with this extremely different pattern of bringing up of the two boys is reflecting how Elizabeth's um, siblings, how Elizabeth's brothers, um, her elder brother uh, Edward and her younger brother Richard, the princes in the tower, had been brought up by Edward IV and and Elizabeth Woodville. And it was again this pattern of dramatically different rearing for the elder son and the second son. Richard brought up by Elizabeth Woodville um, at court um, and the elder brother brought up in this rigorous masculine environment in Wales. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Think about it, and think of the contrast, and think which we think is best. Well, we know which is best, don't we? Sending a boy off, you know, you know, to be abused by older men, you know, in, in alien environments, separating from his mother is bound to produce this deeply damaged person. You know, being with his mother, being with his sisters, it will civilise him, it will tame him. Can I suggest that we all pause for thirty seconds and look at the consequences with Henry VIII? <laughs> What is very striking about Henry, and another one of the reasons I think that we're so interested in him, is that in some ways Henry, although amazingly remote, 500 years remote, um, is also very, very modern. His attitude to women, dare I say it, is very modern. Henry, I think, remember, there are two reasons to marry six times. One is that you don't take it seriously, and the other is that you take it far too seriously. And I think Henry belongs to the second group. Remember, Dr. Johnson's famous remark, all Dr. Johnson's remarks are famous, except when he wrote them, at which point it's unreadable, but when verbal smarteries were being written down by that wonderful Lickspittle, James Boswell, they're brilliant. Uh, Johnson's wonderful remark that, you know, to marry twice is the triumph of hope over experience. What is the sixth marriage? <laughs> okay, now, Henry, I am going to venture to, does this. And I think this is the, one of the very few really extraordinary things about his upbringing. This is completely unlike what most similar boys of his status would have had. I think Henry is a genuine romantic. I think Henry, dare I say it, in the full Liverpudlian sense of the word, believes in love. (laughs) I think Henry really believes in love. He even tells us, because he writes poetry when he's a young man, much of which is love poetry, he tells us he even married for love, which was completely unknown amongst the upper classes and was regarded as pure bad manners. I mean, love was for a mistress. You know, wives were there for status, money, international relations. If you're a monarch or whatever. So Henry marries for love, and much good it did him. Um, because Henry, like us or Prince Charles, believes—or especially Princess Diana—believes that when you fall out of love, you should fall out of marriage. But what happens when your marriage, like a royal marriage then, or indeed a royal marriage now, is a public symbol? Hmm. Henry also, again, we've completely forgotten this, is a really lovely, caring, sharing husband until he cuts your head off. I mean, (laughs) he is a complete gentleman. Um, uh, There are are accounts, for example, of how he on the one hand and Francis I on the other behaves to their wives during pregnancy. Um, Francis I is an absolute brute with poor Queen Claude. She's dragged round onto the hunting field when she's eight months pregnant. And the English ambassador is just not used to this kind of thing. So, you know, the poor woman can hardly go, walk, in other words, and she's made to ride. Henry, his queen, sort of, you know, retire into luxurious confinement weeks and weeks and weeks uh, before they're due to deliver. I mean, this is a mark of his, you know, his, his amazing astonishing sympathy, he even stops hunting when they go into delivery, you know, and this is, this is more than any man, he doesn't actually stand there, but it's more than any decent, self-respecting English gentleman could do, give up hunting just because your wife is palpitating, you know, um, but he does that, um, and, and again, uh, although he's not normally hymned by the Greer faction, Henry is the origin of equal opportunities. It's only because of Henry that females have got a right to the succession of the English crown. No woman had occupied the throne before Henry. And Henry, uh, uh, despite the fact that he spends so much time and effort and rips England and its religion apart uh, to um, uh, get, a, get a son, and um, Henry introduces the right of female succession. He even introduces equal opportunities in executions. <laughs> um, I mean, Henry believes that women are intelligent enough to plot treason, which is a very novel view. So, um, so Henry, I think that's the most extraordinary thing about Henry. I would argue that it's the only extraordinary thing about his upbringing. Otherwise, what strikes you about the young Henry is just how incredibly, completely, totally conventional he was. In other words, Henry is as Henry VII was supposed to be. I think Henry VII is an astonishingly radical, innovative, strange, as you'd expect, and you know wild, you know, wild Franco- Welsh usurper, wildly strange, creative king. The son, in the first 20 years of his reign, is totally and absolutely conventional. He has a conventional, good education: Latin, French, English. His Latin is a bit different because unlike um, most, most, most laymen at the time, he has um, an education in the new Latin, the new Latin. Which is coming through with Erasmus, which is of course going to be of extraordinary importance because that will enable Henry to do his own homework for the divorce. I mean, that's very, very great importance. But I think it's it's you know it, it's a by issue at the time. Um, Henry uh, also his education is conventional, um, though he is not in the in the terms of the range of skills which he has. He's he's taught things like music, but he happens to be a very competent musician. So he's taught both. He's got special tutors uh, both for women. Um, and for string. Um, He is, again, his first really important teacher is this extraordinary late medieval poet, John Skelton, and that's one of the reasons I think that Henry writes as much verse as he does and as competently as he does. He's actually a rather odd thing to do, to have a poet as your tutor, but anyway, um, uh, uh, that's what happens. His upbringing, too, is completely conventional in that it is profoundly gallophobic, Although he is taught uh, French by a native speaker, a man called uh, Giles Douze, or well, it's not quite clear, it's Fleming, not quite clear how it should be pronounced. Um, equally, he is soaked in the great legends of medieval history of Henry V, um, of, of uh, the, you know, the, the, the anti-Frenchness of, of Richard the First Crusade, and all the rest of it. He's profoundly French-hating, which again is completely conventional for the upper classes at the time. And finally, it's conventional in the Two key areas in chivalry, that's to say the attitude to knighthood. Remember, the natural culture of the English upper class, and I would argue this is true until a very long way into the 19th century, is very similar to that of a black gangster. That's what, this is why Shakespeare can only now be understood if you are black. I mean, I've been to performances with a nice white middle-class audience of measure for measure. And here is this poor sister who's about to be raped and her honor destroyed, and the audience thinks it's funny. Why should a man die to protect the honor of his sister? What the hell is the honor of your sister? You understand, if you're in the Middle Ages, the early modern period, the 18th, 19th century, you understand now in the world of the honor culture of a black gang, we don't. But Henry is brought up in that world and, of course, fully shares it. It's also a world of systematized, stylized violence. Everything honour is about killing. Killing according to rules. And there's a hierarchy of killing. lowest level of killing is killing animals, hunting. Of course, according to strict rules, we only hope they understand, but you know, there are very strict rules in hunting. Next level is pretending to kill human beings in the joust, and occasionally succeeding, but again, you know, it's all decent sport, and it's rugby on horseback, and all that, rugby, uh, sort of rugby league on horseback, and all that, so it's, and Henry works out, by the way, and has got weights, and looks very much like one of those figures that's charging around, you know, for one of those ridiculously named teams in bright lycra, which does actually look very much like uh, coat armour, doesn't it. But anyway, um, and then finally, the supreme test of knightly virtue, war, the sport of kings. It's that hierarchy of killing. And Henry is brilliantly good at jousting because, ladies and gentlemen, he's a born jouster. He's six foot two. When he's a young man, he's got a 40-yard chest. Mm, goes out like that. So, And as I said, he works out. We know that. From his inventory, he's got weights. How can you joust otherwise? You're controlling what is a cart horse. Um, You are wearing body weight and more of armour, and you're trying to balance a lance, which is 12 feet long, and probably 8 inches there, with a metal tip, and aim minutely to hit the equivalent of the jaw, the visor. That's equivalent. You know, it's the score in boxing, it's that score in boxing, and Henry is incredibly good at it. So... Deeply conventional, and it brings in its train that combined with the anti-French, a whole series of conventional responses. And finally, and what was one of my great discoveries of last year, um, uh, of the biography and also of the exhibition at the British Library, Henry is totally conventional in religion. Totally, absolutely conventional. We've actually got his principal devotional aid. We've got the thing that he uses when he worships when he's a teenager. Um, it's an extraordinary document. It's called a bead roll or prayer roll. It's five inches wide and 11 feet long. Um, it's narrow strips of parchment. So it's a portable aid to devotion. And it takes you, those of you in here who sat at the feet of Eamon Duffy, and I hope several of you have, this is the world of religion of Eamon Duffy. This is the world in which magic and religion and talisman and miracles all flow together. At the center of it is the passion of Christ, but the passion of Christ understood as a mystic moment with the blood and the the great image of the the crucifixion uh, in this role shows the actual blood of Christ being collected by wandering angels in this great And this is, of course, the mystery of the mass, the miracle of the mass, redemption, transformation, but also a lot of far more mundane things. There are prayers down one side of the road in, in Latin, written in black, and there are English instructions in red. And the English instructions tell you what you get if you actually do all this stuff. Correctly, If you do the appropriate adorations and mutterings of prayers in front of that image of the crucifixion, you do amazingly well. You win the jackpot. You get 555,422 years and then whatever it is, three weeks, four days out of purgatory. And it's guaranteed, and the sort of papal authority with a named pope at the bottom giving it to you. Um, if you uh, do another set of prayers, um, and I imagine that uh, uh, Messrs. Brown and Mandelson are performing them even as we speak now, you are guaranteed against having your back stabbed. It will not happen. Um, and uh, another set of prayers, and having the row, if you're a woman, having the roll rolled up, because they presume you can't read, I suppose, but having the roll rolled up on your belly when you're in labor guarantees that the kid's born and you survive. This is religion as magic. And we've got Henry's signature in the middle of it, and a dedication to his favorite servant, his favorite private servant of the time, a man called William Thomas, saying, William Thomas, I pray you, pray for me as I pray for you, Prince Henry. This is the world that Henry's brought up in. There's nothing Erasmian. There's nothing reformed. There isn't a trace of the experiments in religion that people who were so influential around him, like Moore and Erasmus, were carrying out. Nothing, nothing, nothing. He is totally, absolutely conventional. So, that's the man who becomes king at the age of 17 years, 10 months. And what does this man do? Well, he shows that he is conventional. He marries what else does any boy at that age want to do? It's the only way he can, you can know, get it legitimately, and so there's princess available, so he does that. And then he concentrates all his energies on hunting, jousting, and war. And, of course, naturally, war with the French, um, which he does at huge, vast cost. Henry's first French war... Which he fights against in the teeth of enormous opposition from his council. I'm just looking at how long it takes Henry to get that war going. He comes to the throne in 1509. It's four full years before he launches that invasion, and I've now been able to unearth just what both the degree of French subtlety, the French are terrified about an English invasion. The notion that France was contemptuous of England or England was an irrelevant military power simply isn't true. The French monarchy bends all its energies to stopping English intervention because, of course, it wants to go off and have nice conquests in Italy where the weather's better, the food's better, you know, (laughs) Uh, um, uh, 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 everything is better. Um, But Henry, four years to get this thing going, but having got it going, he spends the entire legacy of his father his father leaves about a million sterling. Now, that doesn't sound very much. My little house in Islington, I'm delighted to say, is worth much more than that. But, but ladies and gentlemen, uh, Henry had not had you know, repeated Labour governments, so there wasn't this you know, <laughs> terrible problem of, 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 of fiscal collapse. Um, uh, the entire gross revenues of England were about hundred and ten, a 120000 a year. Henry, in six months' war, blows in ten. Years accumulated, but, ladies and gentlemen, it's worth it. Why? Because that's how you become great. Remember, look at America now. Look at poor Obama, faced with this terror. He is ruling a great nation. The only way that you can rule a great nation is to go bankrupt with your foreign policy, isn't it? Look at look at our history. Foreign policy demands, doesn't it, to be a great nation demands great conquests. it demands great gestures, it demands vast expenditure. Henry gets it with that intervention in France. Okay, he's wrecked the finances, bugger that, he's got the fame. And in Italy, Machiavelli knows Henry matters. That's what he cares about. You get these Italians suddenly saying, Henry's a great ruler, there's this extraordinary ruler in the north, there is this great figure in the north. So Henry's got it. But of course, ladies and gentlemen, there does nevertheless, as Obama is finding out, as we found out, you know, to our chastening and shame after the Second World War, it does eventually have to be paid for. And you eventually find you can't keep on doing this. So what, of course, Um, Henry does, um, is to discover, well, uh, if you can't keep on fighting war, and why can't you keep on fighting war? Ladies and gentlemen, let's get this right, and it also will help us to understand what is happening to us in Europe. France, ladies and gentlemen, is four times as big as England. In the 16th century, England had a population of two and a half million. France had one of twelve. The revenues of an English king are 100,000. The revenues of the French are a million. England is totally outclassed. We are not one of... We really aren't. We're actually quite a small country, especially if Scotland is hived off, as it was then. It was, of course, a separate state. So Henry discovers he just can't keep up with Francis I and Charles V, and Charles V is even more of a problem than France. Remember, what does Charles V rule? Well, he's overlord of Germany, he rules Austria, Hungary, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Milan, Naples, he's got claims on Cyprus and the Kingdom of Jerusalem, Spain, and the New World. Are we all getting the idea? So, Henry has to do what? Well, I suppose it's a kind of Mr. Blair at the moment. After you've fought the Iraq war, you become peace envoy. Um, uh, and, uh, b- both both being acts of equal sincerity, I suppose. Um, and, and Henry, uh, having decided that he can't really keep on fighting war, then wages peace. But he wages a completely different sort of peace. Again, it's very Blairite. It's peace with fame. Peace with an edge of jazz about it. And it's quite amazing how... Similar it all is. If you look, for example, at the great peace treaties that uh, uh, England uh, effects with France uh, in 1518 and 1527, they have these wonderful names. The Treaty of 1518 is the Treaty of Perpetual Peace. It lasts two years, which is kind of a problem. <laughs> so when you, re- when you repeat it in 1527, you've got to ratchet it up that bit further. Well, there's only one way to go. It becomes the Treaty of Eternal Peace, <laughs> Pax Eterna. And uh, you get Francis I, Henry VIII, and Cardinal Wolsey presented respectively as God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Ghost, with Wolsey actually acting as the Holy Ghost, don't you? very, very extraordinary. Um, If you look at something, for example, like the great celebrations for the first of those treaties, which is the Field of Cloth of Gold, it's exactly like the Olympics, and costs as much, and lasts as long. Um, uh, The the Field of Cloth of Gold is an Olympic Games. It centers around uh, hugely expensive temporary pavilions, and hence the the, 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 the cloths of gold, and, and, and vastly uh, elaborate jousts and wrestling matches and all the rest of it. Um, uh, but of course, it's a combination of an Olympic Games with the kind of expo, with all of these amazing, fantastic temporary structures. So, well, that's quite impressive, but ladies and gentlemen, as I'm afraid post-war Britain is discovering, it's very simple, you cannot punch. In foreign policy, you finally punch at your weight. And Henry's weight, as against Francis I and Charles V, wasn't all that great. So by the end of the 1520s, this vastly expensive series of experiments in war and peace leave England isolated and humiliated. And finally, Henry has failed at the most fundamental task of a king, produce a son. In other words, if Henry, 20 years after he came to the throne... 1528. There's a very it's bit like, um, uh, a, a, a bit like a bit like swine flu, except that it's real. Um, there, there is a, a terrible wave of influenza that sweeps uh, England, called the sweating sickness, and it nearly carries off Anne Boleyn. Imagine if it had done. Um, it strikes into the heart of the royal court. It, it kills Henry's favourite body servant, William Compton, um, uh, and, and so many other people. Imagine if Henry had died in 1528, would I be giving this lecture? (laughs) Would you have come here? No. Henry would have gone down as a kind of bad, feeble, late medieval would-be Henry V. That's what he would have been. So there is in fact, ladies and gentlemen, a profound, extraordinary paradox. The only reason that Henry... He's famous, which he is. He's purely accidental. He'd failed to have a son by Catherine, and instead, what does he do? He's also, of course, completely fallen out of love with Catherine. But Catherine, by this point, is a bit like Victoria in middle age. You know, you begin by being svelte and pretty, and then those ten pregnancies and no post. Parturition exercises produce something quite horrible. I don't know whether you've ever seen the Royal Collection's displays of Victoria's knickers. I mean, they're they're pieces of of engineering, rather like the roof of St Pancras Station. And poor poor, poor, um, Catherine of Aragon is much the same, just gone like that. So Henry's completely fallen out of love with her, and instead he falls in love with this extraordinary woman, Anne Boleyn, which of course he shouldn't have done. She is not, remember, chap's taste doesn't change very much. Men in the 16th century go for Marilyn Monroe in just the same way that they do uh, in, 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 in the 21st century. They want their women blonde, blue-eyed, uh, pale skins, pink cheeks, all of that, and, you know, all this kind of thing. Um, and Amberlyn isn't a little bit like that at all. She's dark-haired, she's got a sallow skin, um, she's got these strange elongated fingers that may even have been a residual finger. Why does Henry give her a second look? Well, he does, ladies and gentlemen, it's very interesting how the reputation of countries doesn't change. France was, in the 16th century, the headquarters of three things. Food. Henry VIII had a French chef called Pierre au Le Doux, Peter the Sweet. So he's not of the Gordon Ramsay tendency. You know, he's, 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 he's one of the others, uh, the, lim- the limperisted type. Uh, wine. Henry has these huge shipments of wine brought over from Bordeaux and sex. Um, France is the country where women learn to manipulate men. Remember, there is this strange notion, ladies, that uh, you have no power uh, before modern times, that the world divides itself into the years A.G. and B.G., before Greer and after Greer. (laughs) This is nonsense. Women exercised enormous power, as they still do, by telling stupid men what to do. That is the, that's the essence. Yeah, you were right. You, were, uh, yes. the, you're, you make a fascinating vignette at this point, yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> confirming exactly what I'm saying. As a gay man, I can observe this thing you know, with, with an amused distance. Um, and and uh, Anne Boleyn is a mistress of these arts. She's a mistress of the arts that historians, uh, with their, their way of giving things such pedestrian names, call boudoir power ability to manipulate. And that's what Anne does. And we can date it precisely, we can date the moment at which Henry, as Anne refuses to have him any other way, um, agrees to marry Henry. It's the 1st or 2nd or 3rd of January 1527. Now normally, ladies and gentlemen, this should present no problem at all. Henry had not only been conventional in all the ways I've been describing, he was the loyalist son of the papacy. He fights his first French war as the major ally of Pope First Pope Julius II and then Pope Leo X. Then when Martin Luther starts attacking the papacy under Leo X, he's the only contemporary monarch to defend the papacy right, to actually write in defense. I mean, he doesn't write at all any more than most of the books on the bestseller list that are written by the people whose names appear on them. I, mean, I don't think Jordan could even read the books you know, um, that are published in her name unless she was fitted with a bifocal bra. But, um, the, the, um, um, and Henry, therefore, his book is ghosted to a significant extent by Thomas More. And More, in that book, in 1521, says to Henry, as he's ghosting it, do you really want to elevate papal power to the extent that you're doing? Do remember <coughs> a certain Henry II and Becket." And Henry, 1521, says... I shall never be a Henry II. There will be no Becket. Six yeah. years later, the Pope says no to the first stages of his divorce. Why does the Pope say no? Accident. Again. A few months after Henry and Anne agree to marry, Henry has got this appalling ill luck. Charles V's troops, that's the nephew of Catherine of Aragon, capture, sack Rome, and hold the Pope prisoner. And from that point onwards, the Pope is held by the Spaniards. He cannot give Henry his divorce, even though Henry had every reason to expect that it would be nodded through. So Henry, this deeply conventional king, is forced by the position that he finds himself in, his determination to get an heir, and even more his determination to marry Catherine. He has got to do the most unconventional things, and he does them in the most unconventional way. Up to that point, the Royal Library, well, dare I say it, I'm sure, uh, Cambridge, uh, good good uh, Puritan territory, uh, doesn't have too many uh, dyed-in-the-wool um, uh, Windsor monarchists about it. But the, um, the Royal Library of the late Middle Ages was very much like the library at Windsor now, i.e. it was a library for people who don't read. Um, it consisted of large numbers of very expensively bound, beautifully illustrated books. Okay? Henry transforms it into a real working library that is stuffed with boring theology, boring law, boring history. Why? Because he's using it as the basis of the first think tank operation in English history. um, What he does, he presides, he uses, of course, again, assistance, now very definitely not more, uh, but essentially, again, a whole club. Remember, I was saying this is the moment at which Cambridge comes to its own. Everybody who works on the divorce is Cambridge. You've got Stephen Gardner, who is the master of Trinity Hall. You've got Edward Fox, who is, the ma- who is the provost of Kings. And you've got William Butts, the loyal physician, who acts as the main conduit between Cambridge and the court, um, who is the master of Gonville. There isn't yet a keys because the keys not yet come along. The whole thing, and of course the principal theolo- theologian, is Thomas Cranmer of Jesus. And it's this team, working with Henry, working with this library, that put together these two extraordinary assertions The Pope cannot um, rule on a marriage of uh, of, of the widow of a deceased brother to a living brother. He cannot rule on it because it is a fundamental law of both nature, natural law, and divine law that such a marriage is illegitimate and cursed. And secondly, the Pope's got no authority anyway because there is no such thing as a universal church. There are only national churches, and the proper head of each national church is the king. Now, this, remember, is an utterly extraordinary series of assertions. There have been clashes between kings and popes before, but never ever had anything been done like this. And above all, never had any king had, bizarrely, the courage actually to carry it through and to hold to it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why Henry mattered. Because the revolution that is implied in that genuinely is the breaking point in English history. The, the most important difference in, the, in, as it were, the uh, psyche of a country in Europe is are you Catholic, are you Protestant? This is the moment at which this enormous shift takes place in English history. But is not simply a religious revolution uh, until we were happily reminded of it by 9-11. We've forgotten how important religion was. It's not simply a religious revolution. It is also the moment, I would argue, at which England itself is actually created. What Henry does as part of this process of religious revolution is to invent the idea of England as being different. England as being unique, England as being separate. Henry VIII, in other words, is the original Eurosceptic. (laughs) Before Henry, the notion that England is different from Europe is unintelligible, because after all, England for most of the Middle Ages is part of some huge kingdom, that stretches you know across most of France, chunks of Scotland, Ireland, heaven knows what. It's a, it's a multinational, multi, not the, the, the word nation means very much, but it's this huge multinational state. And the channel is merely a convenient means of communication or invasion. It's Henry who turns the channel into a genuine defensive ditch. He has this extraordinary idea, because of course um, schismatic, heret- her- her- heretical England becomes the pariah state, of the middle years of the 16th century, and there's a threat of invasion by both the Pope, uh, um, Francis I, and Charles V. Henry conceives of this extraordinary notion of mapping all England. He maps the entire English coastline. It's an astonishing achievement. He maps the entire English coastline from north of Hull to north of Milford Haven, going the whole of the way around. Every inlet, every harbour, every promontory is surveyed, and every one of them is marked up as to how easy it is to land there and what defensive guns and forts do you need to stop people doing it it is the largest scheme of fortification before the 1940s it's much bigger than the Martello Towers and whatever against Napoleon many of which are actually on the same site it's an astonishing achievement and Henry creates a deep sea fleet that acts as the second line of defence to that now ladies and gentlemen he not only does that as uh, an amazingly uh, important book in the library of Clare College here also demonstrates under him English is really invented as a great language. It's the first uh, full-scale edition of Chaucer, the first complete works of Chaucer in print and in that it's quite extraordinary. The preface is written by the equivalent of the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Can you imagine? Of course Alistair Darling is a Scot but wouldn't write in praise of an English poet. Anyway, uh, so so far has England fallen. But in that preface you get Sir Brian Tuke who writes it whilst waiting for the turning of the tide at Greenwich. He's commuting between the Palace at Greenwich uh, and the headquarters of government at Westminster. He writes it whilst waiting for the turning of the tide at Greenwich and he claims that English is a great European language to stand alongside Latin, Greek, Greek. French, Italian, Spanish, and even, he says, German. Um, it's got a great literature, with Chaucer being the English Homer uh, or the English Virgil, um, and it's got its own grammar, it's got its own internal logic, it's got its ability to communicate. Ladies and gentlemen, it's complete rubbish. <laughs> Two and a half million people only speak English. No foreigner speaks English unless they've lived in England for years, and then they usually have to have a dental operation <coughs> to cope with it. Um, um, it, it. Far more people speak Dutch, because of course the Netherlands are vastly more important. But it's this extraordinary assertion. It's this assertion of, uh, if you like, a national maturity, And again, as part of this revolution uh, in uh, not simply England and Englishness, you invent the great forms of English verse. Blank verse is invented under Henry. The sonnet is invented under Henry, not under Elizabeth. In other words, by complete accident, Henry does matter. Henry does become creative. Henry does deserve his fame. He is, again, by accident, By backing out from an impossible situation, he is the most famous, deservedly the most revolutionary of English kings. This deeply conventional boy translates himself, of course, into an ogre, but also into somebody who deservedly matters after 500 years.